0: to Le de the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Mike Prendergast of the Historical Combat Academy.
1: thanks folks nice to be here josh steve
2: great to have you here mike
0: so this will be our first podcast to come out since i had a baby so this is uh this kind of our our welcome back uh before we start releasing more of the content that we've been working on um but before we with kind of that housekeeping bit aside um mike why don't you tell us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in uh, european martial arts
1: Okay, so a little known fact about me is that I am originally a ninja.
2: Okay? I suspected <laughs> as much <laughs>
3: because, I because
1: much. like many people in the um, in the late nineties, uh, Bujinkan was a thing, and there were like people in black pajamas teaching traditional uh, Budo Taijutsu in Dublin, and I got into that for a while. Um, so that was my martial arts start. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I injured my leg, didn't go back, but I got into Aikido. Which I love the philosophy of, but it's, it's hard to find a place that it's done in a credible way. I'm gonna say, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. it teaches you a lot about movement, momentum, energy exchange, a lot of conceptual stuff that's really useful for fighting. Right? Um, then I I tried sports fencing for four classes, got bored, mm-hmm. and um, I found finally, um, I found the SCA, the Society of Creative Anachronism which is, as many people will know, is a medieval recreation group that's international. Um, and I first got lured in by armored combat. I saw a demonstration of like people in armor whacking each other full force with rattan weapons. So I thought two things. I thought, one, how did you manage to make something so cool look so boring? There two people <laughs> whacking each other? Um, but I also thought, this is definitely cool if it's done right. Um, yeah. And I got into it, and, and it was cool and it was fun. Um, but if I want to start with my HEMA background, it happened sometime in May 1999 in a country churchyard in East Anglia, where I surrounded by oh. gravestones and a ruined church. I had classes by um, <laughs> William Wilson from Tattershall, who was teaching mm-hmm. Spanish mm-hmm. rapier and um, um, I think side sword. Uh, Stefan Dika, who went on to run Alte Kampfkunst in Germany, who's teaching his mm-hmm. very early interpretation of uh, Meyer's rapier. He um, was up here learned Degrassi classes. I, like I had in one day, um guy, Gary Chelak from Southern California, who mm-hmm. was teaching, um, he was helping uh, Will with the Spanish stuff. He later went on to become very influential on me in, in teaching Giganti. But somehow, in this country churchyard on a Saturday in East Anglia, I got this amazing immersion in historical martial arts and I really never look back.
2: Sounds very cinematic, man. I can just totally see that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's
1: in, it's England. <laughs> the lost lost
2: martial artists wandering in. I don't know. Maybe God will tell me and God gives you.
1: <laughs> was, was that in the rain and the gloom because it was England. Or? Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, you know, typically uh, we like to start off with kind of easy ear questions and stuff like that. So let's talk and jump in and start talking about Pietro Monti's life. But the, before we do that, we have to answer one question. So this is the softball. Was Monti Spanish or Italian?
3: Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so for marketing
1: purposes, I like Spaniards and Italians to claim them as his own. But um it seems that Sidney Anglo may have thought he was Spanish, but Margaret Fontaine, who wrote his biography in French, comes down firmly on the side of him being Italian, to the point where mm-hmm. he was born, where he was born. He was born in Tuscany, who his father was. So we're pretty convinced he's a, an Italian who had connections with Spain, spent time in Spain, um, to the point where he mm-hmm. wrote the first draft of the Collector in Spanish, that still exists in the Escorial library. Um, but he is he is, I am convinced, an actual Italian. You had me at
2: Anglo considered him Spanish. I thought that was just we already knew the answer right there. He had to be Italian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh well, uh so I don't know if you've uh if you have a copy of uh Jeffrey Forgang's um of the Collectinia, but he, he makes a, a pretty compelling argument that um, and I, I don't want to disparage what he said. I mean, he's obviously, he, he took this from a, an academic perspective, and I, I respect what he, he wrote. He kind of postulates a, a third line, uh, potential line for Monti here, and says that it's possible that uh, Guicciardini was just wrong about the the family origins of, uh, of Pietro Monti, and that he was actually Spanish, but that Guicciardini writing, you know, 50 years in the future just didn't know what he was talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but, mm, but Jeffrey yeah.
2: Forgang writing 500 years in the future does. I don't know. <laughs> I'm suspicious of that I, that reasoning there.
1: Yeah, I, I think – was it Gucciardini who, who gave a date of, I think, 1460 for his birth as well? Yeah,
0: 1460 is the date that he estimates for his birth, Yep.
1: Yeah, well, we think it's – So he's not – he, We think it's maybe 1457 according to Fontaine.
0: Yeah, so it's about three so, years earlier.
1: Know,
2: I mean, Guicciardini would have Guicciardini would have been one in the you know six degrees of set of Kevin Bacon, the six degrees of Pietro Monti. Guicciardini <laughs> would have been one step away. He would have known people who knew Pietro Monti personally because Guicciardini was involved in political administration in Emilia and Tuscany in the I think as early as the 1520s. So ten years after Monti goes off to that great fencing hall in the sky.
0: Right. Right. He also had a lot of access to documentation before Florence really kind of got wrecked by the Spanish. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, it was probably the most organized uh, of Florentine historical records that was going to exist. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's settled now. So we're going to take Monty as, uh, as an Italian. That's good. Cause it, this, uh, this sets up where we're going to go from here. So who was Pietro Monti?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we have him born uh, of noble birth. Um, according to Fontan, he was born in 1457, and we have his father as uh, Ugolino uh, Marcus de Monti from Tuscany. So he's born as a knight. He learns knightly stuff. Presumably, he's 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 trained from an early age. Um, at age 23, we have him commanding 200 troops in the service of Florence in a in a minor battle. Um, I don't remember who he's fighting against. Uh, against a, against uh, the uh,
0: Naples. Naples. He's fighting yeah. against the uh, this. Yeah,
1: that's right. And a couple of years later, he's fighting in the Four War. He does a lot of he does a lot of um, early on, like in his twenties, he's commanding troops. He's commanding hundreds of troops, so he's obviously, you know, he's he's a professional from an early age. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I could say more about where we go. We have kind of some trace. Um, of where he is at various times. He spends time in Spain, probably around 14, 1480s, 1481, we think maybe he might have first went to Spain, potentially. A lot of a lot of it's fuzzy. We have records of him, and then we have a little gap, and then we have a record mm-hmm. again. So there's a fair bit of speculation. But it's clear that he commanded troops in a variety of areas. He was considered an acknowledged expert, and... Um, fought against Genoese in 1484, defended Montepulciano in 1486. Yeah. You know, there's all these like little nuggets.
0: Yeah, I I like that because uh, I think with the first engagement when he's fighting against the Neapolitans or the Aragonese Neapolitans, um, he's he's fighting in Chianti, and then later on he's fighting in Montepulciano. So it's like he's the protector of great wine.
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like...
0: Everywhere, everywhere the Florentines had good wine. There was Pietro Monti, like defending the, the vineyards. <laughs> I appreciate I that. It. And then, of course,
2: a worthy uh, endeavor.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, with um, real quick, I want to make one quick note about um, the Ferrari Salt War um, before we move on, because this this was actually pretty interesting. Um, we're going to talk about this uh, quite a bit in a in a future episode um, when we talk to uh, Patrick Brighton. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about um, La Policella. and the Ferrari's Salt War is actually really interesting because that's where um, basically Venice gets control of uh, La Policella. and that leads to uh, a lot of conflict in the future that we're going to kind of see in our timeline around 1509. So just want to make a quick foot, footnote there. You can go ahead, Mike.
1: Okay, so we had got we got to the point where as Gesso was talking about up to about 1480s. Um, it's interesting, he seems to have served with his father in 1487, um, defending the fortress of Sarzana, where he's again fighting with the Florence, Florentines. Um, again, 1480s I think 1486, 1487, he gets married to a daughter of a condottieri from Perugia. I don't have her name, but it seems like he's, he's by age 33, he's, he's sort of becoming a respectable uh, commander of troops. Um, we have him in Spain around time of the re- Reconquest of Granada. He was apparently in the court of mm. Isabella of Spain in 1491, and he mm. wrote one of his books, the uh, *Diglossendius uh, Homnius, the um, *On the Sermons of Man*. Apparently, while he was in Spain. So we don't know if he was actually in Granada. It's kind of he fits the timeline, and he was around at the time. We don't have we don't have like a definite eyewitness. It's kind of so it's speculation, but he's obviously. He knows a lot about Spanish types of fighting. He writes about in so there are there's it's um, circumstantial but interesting, I think.
0: And his his editor, right, Mike? His editor is Spanish, uh, Ayora. That's correct. That his, yeah. Um And then the cool thing about Ayora, I I think, um, is that he was uh, from Cordoba and he was a part of the uh, de Cordoba court. Which would be where Manchialino is going to come in later on, in about mm. yeah, in about twenty years. So, uh, really interesting footnote here that um, that would be the second time that the De Cordoba family kind of had a relationship with uh, with Italian sword fighting masters. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, especially the there's quite a lot of crossover culturally between northern Italy and Spain and, and vice versa. So I think claiming him as wholly one or the other is is sort of um, beside the point to some degree.
3: Um,
1: So what's significant? We think, I think, specifically from clues in the Collector that um, he was was definitely in Italy in 1492. And it seems like the period between 1492, 1494, maybe 1495, is when he wrote the bulk of the Collector And that's kind of, he says at one point, when I was writing this book, which is an interesting thing to say in the same book. But he, he mentioned some things that were happening um, and it kind of fits that profile. Uh, one interesting point about the um, collecting is he mentions uh, Indian hens or turkeys. Okay. So we obviously it's. So they'd already
2: been through. come back.
1: <laughs> cool. That's really interesting.
2: Did he mention cranberry sauce too?
0: Um, I, <laughs> <sorry>. Well, <laughs> hey, Mike, you do know. That was, uh, you know, the United States state or is, uh, the national bird for the United States is a bald Eagle, but it was originally going to be a Turkey. That's what, uh, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, (laughs) it's the most American thing ever. It is. It it does. It does stand out
1: as American. Um, yeah. So, (laughs) um, yeah. And there's, you know, there's stuff afterwards, which I'm kind of, I'm less familiar with his later career, but he definitely ends up fighting for on behalf of the, um, at some point, you would think he's with the Aragonese in 1494 in Lugo for a while, but he's back in Milan in 1495. So it seems like mostly in Milan, he's working in Milan. He's with Galeazzo di San Severino, who is the commander of the Duke of Milan's cavalry, um, who's a famous knight and warrior and commander, of course. Um, so he's basically the expert who's the trainer for Galeazzo. And of course, this is famously mentioned in the courtier. Um, the book of the courtier. Hmm. So it's sort of, he's, he's placed very clearly at the same time as Leonardo and San Severino with the Sforzas in Milan during this period. Um, so
2: I wonder bit. if Monte is the one who taught San Severino how to use his lance so
1: well. Uh, I like yeah, <laughs> in, in a sense of whatever, whatever we take that to me. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: well, yeah. Cause I, I was just talking to Steven earlier about, uh, I missed I missed some really good nuggets in our Renaissance family episode where um in in doing a little bit of research on Galeazzo San Severino, I I missed a few uh, uh um, interesting nuggets about his relationship with Ludovico Sforza where they might have been uh, uh in a relationship and in a love triangle with Beatrice d'Este and then um uh Marino Sanudo makes a really funny comment where <laughs> He talks about how he really wishes that uh, Galeato San Severino was uh, as good of a military commander as he was with his lance. And uh, there's an art historian that, <laughs> that took that as sexual innuendo rather than being a practical, like, concern from Senudo. <laughs> oh well, man! Well, but, well, you um,
1: know, Monty does give us a lot of really on-point um, advice for using a lance in, in the Joust. So, you know, who, who's to say?
2: He was a master of all the physical arts as Castelloni calls him, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's pre- He was, supreme. yeah. And and, and that's kind of one of the things about Pietro Monti is like contemporary chroniclers talk about him. I mean, first of all, you know, I guess we should probably kind of frame like Galeazzo Centorino you know, was considered the greatest knight in Italy. Like he was the knight's knight. He was, mm. you know, he was going around, he was winning all these famous jousts and tournaments. Um, you know, I think uh not to jump on the timeline too much here, but in 1495, um, I think it's uh, he's at the Diet of Worms with Pietro Monti, and then it's uh, Galeazzo San Severino, and then uh, Claude de Vaudre. Right. And um, at, at, at the Diet of Worms, Claude de Vaudre, who is a renowned knight, a renowned French knight, actually fights a duel with Maximilian. Um, but that's how renowned he was and and obviously they knew he had a a tremendous amount of control and so um, you know he he was allowed to fight the holy roman emperor which is pretty badass
1: Um, and presumably but that those
0: right yeah (laughs) there's there's actually a there's a really beautiful picture um, in uh, Maximilian's book that he made uh, which is a catalog of duels um and images from duels of him fighting against Vadre. and then um for people that are interested in really nerding out if you ever find yourself at the met in new york um Vadre's armor his dueling armor is at the met
1: is that like the kind um, of so. a tonlet's tonlet's-ish? it's sort of a big armored uh, state?
0: yeah it's it's got this it is it is pretty wide it's it's kind of um i can post a picture in the in the show notes and then it's got this like um it almost looks like, you know, Maximilian's really famous armor where it's got the sort of rounded face um, to it. And then it's got basically like the sort of the ventilations kind of running laterally. Um, it, it looks like that. It's actually, it's a pretty interesting piece, but it, I guess it was made for him later in life. Um, and so he was a little robust. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a wider suit of armor, <laughs> probably to fit the fact that he had let himself go a little bit. But um, yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Um yeah. Yeah, more Henry the eighth style, I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: So Exactly um, Should we talk about his service with Florence in
3: the Florentine
2: Peace and Wars?
0: Yeah, let's do that.
1: Okay, so what, what years are we talking here? Talking... So I think there was
2: two Florentine Peace of Wars, right? There's one around fourteen ninety nine, which is the one where they execute Paolo Vitelli afterwards for basically screwing it up, and then there's another one where Ercole Bentivoglio is in charge, and Machiavelli is unhappy. I think in around 1503
0: or 1504. Yep, mm. and he's yep. was he both right? Yeah. So, yeah. so the first one, the first Florentine piece and war, um, if you guys remember the uh, the Ramazotto highlight that we did, um, I think it was in the second episode. Was that the, the second mm-hmm. um, Maestro yeah. Wars episode? Um, yes. Basically, Pietro Monti is is fighting against uh, would be on the opposite side of that conflict uh, with uh, with Soto. So, um, you know, kind of the the progression of fighting that ends up happening uh, that we see there uh, is is basically what's going on there. He's uh, supporting Paolo Vitelli, um, and he kind of takes on. A a role where he is put in a few defensive operations, um, and then uh, in the latter um, uh, Florentine peace and war, it's um, it's actually really interesting when the, when Ercole Bentivoglio, um, along with probably the rest of the Bentivoglio family, and we think uh, potentially Guido Rangoni as well, because he had received his first conduct, which would be obviously the uh, the person who uh, Achilles Morazzo dedicates his treatise to. Um, when the combined uh, Florentine army, which has Bolognese troops, it has obviously Florentine troops, Ferrari's troops, um, comes and starts to attack uh, Pisa. um, They have a pretty nice complement of artillery with them. And they manage to blow a hole uh, and and, and create a breach in the walls of Pisa. And um, they start... So basically what happens is... uh, they send forward their forlorn hope, their first uh, first line of engagement, and the person who leads that first line of engagement is actually Pietro Monti, um, right. and Monti uh, manages to to take the breach. But the problem is, is that the Pisans had kind of anticipated this, and they they actually came up with um, something that the the Paduans would li- use later on um, during the siege, or the Venetians would use at the siege of Padua, which is called a uh, retrata. Um, and they build a retrata, which is basically a second wall behind their wall, uh, where they can pour, you know, either set up with like pikes along the wall if it's a lower wall or something like that, and 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 kind of contest or you know pour shot down into uh, whatever breach is created.
3: Oh, this and is
0: so like they create bridge. this retrata, and
1: this this is a parallel defense, or is it sort of at perpendicular angles to the? So
2: it would actually be a concave defense. So you would right. you would maintain the bastions, and then you would create this crescent to draw the enemy in, and that would allow for highly advantageous flanking fire right. to come in for the sides. And if you have something like a cannonball, it's very deadly against a crowd if it's moving parallel to it because it can just take multiple people out That's with each right. shot.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's another
2: interest. Oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry. So I was going to go say, the, the interesting thing about this is the way that the, the peasants would anticipate this in particular is because it took so long for artillery to become like, to really enact its effectiveness, right? Like you would have to concentrate fire on one specific area. It would give them time to go ahead and Start building the retrata as they knew. Once they knew where that where that fire was being directed, that's when they would start building that retrata. So they would kind of it it would almost be a surprise, right? You think you've knocked down the wall. You think, okay, we're going to send in our infantry, and then next thing you know, there's another wall that was just built, and then you're you're in trouble. So right, it's pretty interesting. There's
2: another interesting defensive thing at the first siege of Pisa. Uh, because there's a a ditch, and the Florentines bring a bunch of wood and rushes and stuff like that <laughs> to try to cross over uh, mm-hmm. the ditch, and I think it's a little wet, and the the piece in set it on fire by uh, basically taking like bundles of wood wrapped in gunpowder, and that's able to 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 burn that down. So some the Pisa became sort of the famous as the only town to withstand a siege during this time when cannons were running amok.
1: Right. Yeah. It's new technology and, that was definitely needed.
3: Yeah.
1: It's interesting. That's actually – so, Retrata, Retrata is actually something my hometown did against Oliver Cromwell back in uh, – Oh, 60s. no kidding. Yeah, Good yeah. on nice. you guys. I've never named before, but uh, in Clomel, they, again, they, they reduced one section of wall – Um, came in in force but found themselves it was like actually two parallel walls with a cannon position at the end so they kind of got ran ran, ran around the gauntlet Um, lost a lot of cavalry got pushed in so um, Clomel is the dubious distinction of being the town that took longest to surrender to Cromwell
2: (laughs) you gotta you gotta (laughs) take whatever you can
1: get man (laughs) nobody won but we lost less (laughs) Uh, that's right yeah. yeah Uh, exactly. If the, I awesome. sneak the troops out before a massacre, do you do kind of a peace treaty? So, you know, it's like, take what it's you good. can get.
2: You get to negotiate from a position of some strength.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. So the cool thing about the second Siege of Pisa is that Monty actually uh, really distinguishes himself um, in his conduct uh, in that combat. So, you know, he's um, he gets inside of this breach. They end up running into the Retrata. He... His men start to falter, and he basically rallies his men. And he's like, Come on, guys, we can do this. We're going to take on the second line. Um, and so they hold that position, and he sends a, a runner out to Ercole, des, or, uh, Ercole Bentivoglio, and he's like, Listen, we need you guys to come in, and we need support. And the second line of support was supposed to be led by Annabelle Annabale Bentivoglio. And they saw what was going on in the sort of the carnage that was happening with uh, with Monty's men. And they were like, "Yeah, you know, maybe this isn't this isn't what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> so they delayed.
2: Oh, right. Okay.
0: Maybe this is where Monty <laughs> so, gets his
2: line about Italians.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so they actually, Monty has to pull back. And so all the ground that they had gained and everything that they had achieved was basically – Torn away. As a, as a matter of fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he gets on top of the retrata. So he like gets on top of the retrata, wow. and he's trying to like rally his wow. men. He's like, "Come really? on, guys! Like, we've got this." But you know, they don't have any support, so they can't they can't continue forward. And and so um, the thing about this siege, as we've kind of discussed a few different times, is this is literally the inspiration for Machiavelli's The Art of War, and uh, mm-hmm. for his hatred of uh, of Condottieri, um, he scathingly writes about Ercole Pentavolio and his failure in the siege and the usefulness of, um, of Condottieri because of this conduct, because all the other Condottieri were like, you know, he had one good Condottieri and it was Pietro Monti who was like in the line, being a complete badass, just wrecking people. And then all the others are like, mm, this is a little hot for me. <laughs> we're going to hang back. <laughs> so... That's that's significant.
2: Yeah. It is. Yeah. No, he's
0: another. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I was gonna say, there's another look at it, which is that Monte was lucky enough to make it. And the other guys were like, no, that's a suicide mission because the Germans were very brave when they assaulted the Riturata at Padua and Padua is still Italian. Yeah, (laughs)
0: that's true. (laughs) That's a great point. Um, So, uh, next, he, he kind of transitions into his service of, of Venice. Um, and this is another area where you know, uh, I think through uh, Stephen and I's research we found a lot of really interesting information and I think mm-hmm. in particular of note is the uh, um, the progression of fighting as it starts to go north uh, in 1508, uh, where we know that our friend uh, Mancino of Bologna um, is in Venetian service as well. Basically, uh, with uh, um, De Alviano, um, Pietro Monti, and Mancino of Bologna, along with a few other condottieri, who, you know, they don't matter to this story. This, those three, because, you know, they're interesting mm, here. Yeah. Because we know, we have, we have um, you know, we have Palladini talking about Mancino. We have Pietro Monti, we, we know about him in particular and and so we've got these two characters that show up in fencing treatises and we're sort of renowned swordsmen of the age um, they go up and they fight up against uh, fight against a bunch of lands in the Alps um, because the Venetians try to cut the uh, the Germans off as they're trying to come in uh, to attack the terra firma and basically just absolutely stonewall them and uh, and wreck the Germans in the Alps so Um, Another really interesting uh, progression of of history here where we have uh, Pietro Monti kind of being engaged. But then, of course, um, that engagement is the precursor to what will be the the War of the League of Cambrai, which starts out with absolute tragedy. And while we've kind of covered the southern portion of what's going on, we haven't talked about the Battle of Agnadello. And so um, let's talk about Agnadello.
1: Yeah, a long afternoon. I understand. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure. Well, you know, D'Alviano, uh, being the uh, kind of the the more fiery of the uh, of the Venetian condottieri, um, you know, he is working on. He and, and Pietro Monti end up in the uh, sort of the the rear, um, sort of holding up the. Uh, the rear of the uh, Venetian army and they're supposed to be mirroring the French and they're moving along instead of attacking when D'Alviano wanted to attack the French as they were crossing the Alps, which would have made perfect sense, you know, from a strategic perspective, but I think he lost out to, uh, Um, and, uh, he basically had to, at that point, uh, you know, he, they decided that they were going to mirror the French, and in the course of mirroring the French, uh, the the forward, uh units of the French army ended up engaging with the rear units of the the Venetian army around uh, the town of Agnadello. And um, while uh, D'Alviano was able to kind of make something of what happened in that engagement early on um, by getting a lot of his forces engaged, uh, he couldn't get the rest of the Venetian army to engage, where... Um, once he actually had established sort of a defensive line, uh, he was able to sort of uh, take on the the French gendarmerie and uh, put them in a pretty bad spot and turn them around. But then the rest of the French army started to engage. And that's when DiAlviano basically got surrounded and uh, basically got, you know, really kind of got his ass kicked and mm-hmm. particularly, in particular um, uh, refused to engage, but, uh there's an account here of Pietramonti in battle. This is um Pietro Monti unfortunately lost his life at the Battle of Agnadello, but uh he lost his life in a way that uh is pretty phenomenal. I'll let you let you kind of hit that uh Mike.
1: This might be uh Degli Agostini's description.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: there's, yeah, there's there's kind of his final like eyewitness account, um, which goes something like But the good and brave Pietro Monti did so many deeds that the fact that he and his men were killed is very beautiful. And he was all covered in blood, killing on the battlefield to his left and to his right side. Or at times, like a furious wind that knocks down the plants and trees of his of his flail, I translate that as, he slaughtered the people in this war, wounded, smashed, brought down, spurned, and killed his enemies. So it sounds like early Irish myth to me. It's like, it's, it's pretty epic. Uh, it is. Yeah, and no, actually it's, it's
0: incredibly epic and
1: it's something it's something that if having you know studied and trained in Monty's swordsmanship, this sort of eyewitness thing of um killing to his left and his right, like when like there's a lot of like flow and momentum in his two handed sword technique that I can totally see him there with a great sword just laying waste. So it's sort of I can picture that. So it's it's it sounds like it's an eyewitness yeah. discussion to some degree.
2: Maybe we should talk about Montes fencing
1: then.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um.
1: Fencing. Um, yeah. So obviously Montes fencing is what brought me to this gentleman. Um, and I guess initially it's, I read the Renaissance, the, Martial Arts of Renaissance Europe by Sydney Anglo back in the day. Mm-hmm. I think it came out in 2001. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, he mentioned Monty and there was rumors he would, had a forthcoming translation and nothing happened for a long time. And there were rumors that Toby Capwell was somehow involved or had a colleague who was doing it, so I tried mailing him, couldn't find out anything. Eventually, sometime around 2013, I got impatient and um, made a plan to translate it. But we can talk about translation later. What I discovered was a whole lot of stuff that hadn't really been interpreted. I think some guys in Italy, I think uh, Roberto Gotti, and his group had been doing a little translation and, and work on his longsword. Um, and it may be a few other places in the world. But Monty's system involves, I count like 18 different sort of weapon combinations. Uh, it's structured basically as a lot of Italian systems are. It's, it's founded on wrestling, and mm-hmm. the way you move in wrestling is how you move with arms. Um, but it encompasses long weapons and short weapons, and there's a sort of a... a sample weapon for each of those that you learned all the long and short weapons with so essentially it's a system of wrestling long weapons which are the primary military weapons and then short weapons which includes a sword that comes up to your nose or eyes that's a short weapon I everything mean, below that is short
3: um, <laughs> okay.
1: he does he does an awful lot of stuff about horsemanship and um, we mentioned in the lead up to this discussion that he has a lot of input on Armor, armor components, how armor is put together, but there's a lot of very like practically described information about horsemanship, um, choosing good mounts, um, how to behave in the joust. So there's an awful lot of stuff that's about, and then his wrestling is, is partially about uh, what we might call sportive wrestling, or you know, probably training, but non you know aggressive wrestling. Uh, but obviously, a lot of his his stuff is practical that you would teach the knights that would teach to the Milanese cavalry and the the troops of the Sforzas. So it's just very terror what what he deals with. It's not very well organized. Um, Monty really needed um, an editor. Um, And I think, you know, if he had, if he had been, if it had been published during his lifetime, I'm sure he would have gotten that editor and worked through it as it it was. It was published posthumously at the year of his death. So I guess it was, whatever was there was what, you know, made it to the press.
0: Yeah, I, you know, uh, what's a
2: Levada? That's, oh, go ahead, sorry.
0: Oh, yeah, no, you can, uh, you can jump right in with that. Yeah, so
2: I think he's Monty's, you know, since Hema is essentially the study of the two handed sword, for better
1: or for worse. (laughs) Um, I know, I mean, I wore wore black for the occasion.
2: (laughs) 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 Um, So, you know, He's famous for his levada. So can you tell us about his levada?
1: Sure. The levada are the first blows which we teach or which we learn. So levada exists for the long weapons, which the sal- exemplar is the pole axe. And for the short weapons, the exemplar is the sword of two hands. So um, it's a it's a sequence of blows. Monty describes blows. And when he says blow, he actually means a sequence of two to three strikes or actions mm-hmm. that, that segue together. Um and he emphasized the key characteristics of the weapon. The levada of the poleaxe is is more focused on trusting. The Levada mm-hmm. of the sword is more focused on cutting. Okay. Um and he doesn't give us a lot of rationale for why these are the fundamental blows or mm-hmm. what what the what the what the logic of them is. I have a personal theory that it is a lot of it is they teach you how to move with the weapon effectively. I don't necessarily think they're the most, let's say, the only, like, the best tactical approach in a given situation or or the most fundamental. I think they're actually somewhat challenging in ways. I think they help you to learn how to coordinate your body with the weapon. And so these it's are, serious.
2: correct me if I'm wrong, these are rising true edge cuts from right and left. Is that correct?
1: Well, uh, so we're talking about the levado of the sword. Then right. they can be. The levado of the pole axe is mostly sequence of truss with some edge blows. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, and Monty. just on a segue of the poleaxe, um, the the poleaxe, the pints are best for fighting. The hammer is good for strong blows and for fainting, but mm-hmm. poleaxe is mostly a trusting weapon. Uh, mm-hmm. when we get to the sword. Uh, yeah, the characteristic Monty attack is two rising blows from either side. Uh, Monty says as much in several chapters. He has a chapter about the Levat, called the lavata of the sword, where he gives a number of sequences of blows that are are my, like, this is my introductory class when I teach Monty's sword, when I tend to do Mm -hmm. a seminar, that's what I'm essentially teaching. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So, yeah, the first one is it's a rising blow from the right, rising blow from the left, assuming you're right-handed. Pairs of of rising blows from the left or from the right, frequently segueing into a a rising blow that segues into a trust, which I call it, which Mm -hmm. I interpret as his, his maneuver called the Gita, so guida is spanish for guide but it um he says of it that is it lies between a rising blow and a stuck outer
2: so it basically be like a montante thrust in polonese
1: yes and that yep. is, the false edge is coming up right right so you're
2: deceiving with the, the true edge cut. you flick the false edge over and then ruin their day
1: bingo bingo yeah okay. um and yeah so the thing is that it's mostly it's mostly rising cuts um Interestingly, Montan- Montante is the term Monty uses for a rising blow in general. Mm-hmm. And um, so this so in this view, Fendentes, but um, it's basically he likes to do rising cuts. And he has a lot of, after the chapter that gives the basic, these are the things we drill essentially, uh, he gives a lot of martial advice that is implied, applies mostly to the sword, but you know all the short weapons um, have. How, have an application or this advice has an application for all short weapons um, for instance advice once you've, you've, you've shown that second blow is a Gita that you didn't come and cover on the other side immediately um, so there's like striking covering yourself, there's a lot of it, tactical advice I find really interesting um, in some ways it was like if you guys are familiar with uh, Filippo Valdi, um mm-hmm. I find the real juice in that source is not the plates but the chapters on how we fight at the Metzaspada and just sort of what happens at the engagement. That's the sort of thing that we we don't get the verbal description of from say Fiore, but by the time we get yeah. to Raleigh, there's, there's more text and <laughs> can understand the play of the sword. So
2: right. So these are all basically wrestling guys that are stuck with a sword in their hand, and they're well, trying to figure out how to how to close so they can actually do what they like to do, which is throw people on the ground. And
1: I get the feeling that uh, Monty's quite fond of his sword. Oh, is he? That- okay, all right. Um, look like he starts with wrestling because it's the basis of how, learning how to move. He talks about how you learn lightness and speed. Um, and nothing else teaches that like wrestling. However, I think you know his main game is armored fighting. He's considered right. like an infantry soldier. So I think yeah, obviously he he has chapters on how to fight in close arm close combat with the poleaxe, But um, he surprisingly doesn't get into detail of wrestling with the weapon. He has okay. about twenty different wrestling techniques. He has a lot of techniques with the weapon and then he has chapters on how you close and what moves you make to close, but then he says go do the grips of wrestling kind of stuff. He doesn't really sadly doesn't get into that level of technical yeah. detail. But um right. mm-hmm. So yeah. I think I think he's he's quite happy hitting someone with a pollax.
0: I mean Aren't we yeah. all? I mean <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you ever looked at the the anonymous pollax sections and kind of compared um, I, I some of Monty's I've,
1: only very briefly, I, I've I've yeah. started I've started kind sort of going through the sword stuff from the Anonymous, but I haven't really gotten into the pollux. Um Definitely something on my list okay. to do. I, you
2: know, I, I yeah, I wouldn't pay too much attention. The guy that translated that book does not know what the hell he's
1: doing. So well, at least you know, <laughs> he he, he, uh, he put his name to it at least, though. respect. <laughs> 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 like the original.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, right. so
2: now you practice Monte almost exclusively. What does that look like with a
1: longsword beyond the levada? Okay. Well, well, first of all, I don't. Um, uh, in fact, oh. my, my best oh. weapon is rapier and dagger, I have to say. Um,
2: Ooh, again, you rapiers and daggers. They keep We keep inviting people on this show thinking that – Thinking they're going to give us something good, and everybody loves that damn rapier and dagger.
1: Well, you know, the, the thing the rapier mouses did—they had printing presses and a tradition of writing stuff down. So there's like all these like nice, neat instruction. Not that Monty's short on words, but yeah, um, it's it certainly gives. No, us... It, it's
2: hard to beat that rapier and dagger. Right? Anything else with the rapier, I, I feel pretty comfortable going at it with a side sword. But rapier and dagger is just. It's an ugly Cheat. and not fun oh, it's, combination. It's cheating. Yeah,
3: don't it's worry cheating. About it, it, it is it cheating.
1: It won't last long. It'll be over quickly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah. So look, I started. Um, I started raping dagger. I got into Giganti in a big way. As I was saying, Gary Chelak was an early influence. So I got I got hold of his early translations before he published stuff, and you know before Tom Leone's Giganti was out there. So Giganti's been my 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 boy for a long time. Um, but in Longsword, and Gun to Fiori. I used to get to Helsinki quite a bit for SCA events. And I mm-hmm. always drop in Guy Windsor Sal. and went to f- quite a few of his summer, like, week-long intensives. So I picked up a lot of grounding in Fiori. Um, even though Fiori is quite different from Monty, I think it served me well when i approaching another Italian, sort of 200-sword mm-hmm. source. Um, so that, and also I have a love for Mancholino's Sword and Buckler. And mm-hmm. honestly, sword and buckler is my most fun fight. It's not my best yes. fight, but it's my most fun fight. So. Same here. Especially oh, yeah. smart oh, in always. a
2: small buckler where
1: you're really whaling fl- that thing yeah. around. Oh, in in the middle, a of Middling, you know, like not a Rotella, yeah. but maybe, you know, 12, 14 mm-hmm. inches. I kind of like that. Something I you like take sword it, large with, buckler stuff, yeah. Something you would take to a real fight as opposed to a, a game because, you know, you don't want to be hit.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. I, like, so I when, like playing with the 9-inch actually... one. That one's a ton of fun. But Yeah. Go
0: ahead. Oh, yeah. I... How do you, how do you, so since yeah. you've done a lot of uh sword and buckler stuff, how do you view Monti in comparison to some of the Bolognese sources like, like Manchialino, for example, do you see some of Monty's techniques kind of showing up in, in Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, that?
1: we just talked about like how you segue into sort of like a Montante blow, sort of that's a very key Monty thing, for instance. Um, it seems to me that there's a way more rigorous description of multiple techniques in the Bolognese sources. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the Anonimo, but but the other sources also. But well, Monty's more about principles of fighting, and his chapters tend to be reasonably short. There's, I think, something like 273 chapters in the three volumes of the Clectonia, but there's mm-hmm. less pages.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So he's often quite succinct. Um, not always, but often quite detailed. So he will tend to give, you know, like there's basically four blows of the levator of the sword. Okay. And I can easily imagine that would be four chapters in a Bolognese source. So we have less detail. Um, we've got more principles, more what he's thinking about. Um, so so it's hard to compare in depth because some of what we're doing at Monte, what I'm doing at Monte, I'm interpreting what this means. I'm playing with it. I'm sparring with it. I'm talking to other people. But there's, there's iman- sometimes less precise references. So everything I say at Monty is obviously my interpretation, and I can I, I find out points of already alternative interpretations from people I know. Um, but that said, um, I think Monty uses a lot of the same guard positions that the Bolognese do, but he doesn't name them as such. Monty um, uses two guards uh, called Prima and Secunda. Um, First and second, okay as opposed to
0: 22, for instance, um, from some other sources. So so wait, does that mean Agrippa <laughs> plagiarized Monty? Um, you know who's most like Monty? Again, coming back
1: to ripian Dagger, I find a lot of parallel. I'm not saying there's any direct connection at all, but in the thinking of Nicoletto Giganti, where Giganti shows two, two guards who basically on the inside and the outside, but his main thought is, don't form a guard, Set up out the range of your opponents, you observe them, form a counterguard to engage them. And Monty is very much like this. When he talks about the guards, first of all, guards come quite a bit into the description of the two handed sword, several chapters in. And the way he describes them, there are some who hold their sword with the arm high on the right, which is prima. And then there are others, like, so he says, some do, it's not even I'm recommending this. Uh, I think these are kind of typical guards with the large sword. You hold it high. He does not describe holding the sword kind of low at any point. Um, though there are obviously transitional motions where the sword will be low. Uh, But always the hands are sort of forward and extended and straight. A lot of it's about maintaining the momentum of the large sword, of course. Um, So what do I see is similar. I see like a a, um, Guardi Alta from Morazzo is my Mm -hmm. feeling for what, what Prima looks like. Um, okay. with a side sword and similar with a, with a two handed sword. Um, he, there's a way more emphasis on false edge cuts in my reading of the Bolognese systems. Um, false edge cuts no. are clear and at attack. That's, that seems quite distinctly Bolognese. They flow. This, I read a sense of flow and continuous motion in in interpretations of Bolognese that feels like Monty to me. So Morazzo is very like Monty in some ways, with his two-handed sword. Um, um, and I would also think there's a, there's a kinship with Vadi and what Vadi is doing with this sort of shorter two-handed sword.
3: Um,
1: it's also worth mentioning that all those swords are kind of similar. Monty's sword's longer to nose or eyes, but um, we have... Sorry, I have to having a domestic dispute here. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: we see who the master of the house is. One
1: cat is growling at the other cat, so we've separated them. Um, so to, to reset that thought, um, there's, a, there's a similarity in the weapons, the primary weapon, the we of also mm-hmm. the 200 sword of Vadi and of Monty. Um, so Vadi's sword comes to the armpit, Monty mm-hmm. describes a sword to come to the nose or eyes, but there's a huge amount of, like most of the iconography I find from 1490s Milan show swords that are shorter than Monty's ideal description. Uh, there is one, there's like, a, there's a deposition of Christ from like 1501 that actually shows the sword exactly Monty's proportions.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but there's early ones, there's like a, a Liber Jesus, which is a book p- printed, or, sorry not printed but um manuscript from the sforza court which shows swords like sort of two shoulder height so i think you know there are there there's there's a recommended height and monty says the sword should be long which i guess means the other swords are not as long so i think there's a lot we can learn from Vadi and from marazzo and putting that together with monty uh, as long as we don't kind of try and blend the dna too much
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I've always kind of come up with the argument. I know there have been a lot of kind of ulterior or sort of varying theories on what Morazzo is trying to do at the beginning or at least throughout uh, his second uh, assault with the two-handed sword. Mm -hmm. And when I read the beginning of the the second assault with the two-handed sword, the thing that always struck me, and and maybe this is because I've done your Monty class, Um, I I took your class at – what was it, uh, Lord, Lord Baltimore's, Baltimore's challenge? challenge yeah. yeah, which seems like forever ago now. Uh,
1: but it's, but only like, um, it's only like one real year ago,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> not the uh, not the lost years. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was actually um, you know that that had a big effect on me, especially as I went and I started looking at the the second assault um, because when I saw that, when I really started to read that with the way that Morazzo um, kind of encourages you to throw. Um, that those two radopio cuts at the very beginning of that, and then attacking the leg to try to really kind of set up, cause you know, he talks about how that chapter is all about going from wide play to narrow play. Right. And that, that's kind of what that reads to me, right? It's kind of like you go for that wide play it, attack with the intent that, you know, your opponent's going to try to counter attack. They might try to slip and then come back. And then that kind of gives you that entrance of play and it allows you the opportunity to then transition into, to mezzospada. So, um, you know, that's one of the things that I've always kind of grabbed and been like, "Yeah, this is definitely Morazzo plagiarizing Monty here."
2: Ooh, but they're they're not redopio; they're falsy. Now you can say that they're on the redopio line because in his picture they're there, but you could also say that they're vertical or descending.
0: And that well, that would go sense. to uh, I, I already, that. I've already kind of the the verb the, the name that Monty gives that. Where's the one that? where Monty starts it with the true edge and then flips it over to turn with the, uh, what was what that called, called again? We're calling the Gita. The Gita. The Gita. Yeah. So if, with the Gita, that, that's, that's more of how I see it. So it's kind of starts, you, you start to turn that over and then you start to turn that over again. Mm-hmm. And when you get that flick on the reverso side over mm-hmm. and you're throwing it with that falso, that's when you end up kind of getting that nice little, uh, mandrito to the leg and then you can kind of raise up underneath. Um and then kind of that's where you can start mm-hmm. to initiate mesespada.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that kind of description does feel very like what Monty's doing in places for oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So um
0: yeah. which, you know, if we one of the things that we we kind of have speculated about is, you know, we don't know we know let's see, Marazzo was fifty six, he was the same age as uh as Guido Rangone, um, roughly. Uh, so with, you know, we can imagine if uh, with a young Guido Rangoni going out to Pisa with his his uncles, um, you know, that maybe mm-hmm. maybe a young Marazzo who was probably studying the cell alongside him under De Luca um, went along with him and he was a part of that, retin- uh, that retinue and maybe they had exposure to Monty. Maybe Monty was out there teaching since he liked to teach and maybe they learned a thing or two and he decided to well, stick it in.
2: Maybe. Monte decided that he wanted some, you know, tortellini and, out and hung out and decided <laughs> to do what sort of dudes do when they travel.
0: Maybe maybe he was hanging out with his buddy Mancino. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's really cool.
2: Another interesting connection between the Bolognese art and the Monte's art is this idea of redoubling mm-hmm. uh, It's a term we see a lot in the Bolognese authors, although they don't necessarily discuss in detail what it is. Just saying that he he who redoubles his attack is a valorous fencer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Monte goes into uh, some detail as to what it is and provides an answer as to why they're a valorous fencer. Can you let us know about that?
1: Yeah, so Monte, I'm not going to say he uses the word redoubling as a technical term, uh, but there are certain times when he definitely throws a blow um, to provoke a reaction and then follows with a second blow. So it depends on what you interpret re- redoubling. Does redoubling mean repeating the same blow or does it mean following an action with an immediate second action without a pulse? Right. What's What's your take on um, re- re- redoubling to start with?
2: Uh, I interpret redoubling as basically not going into guard but just continuing right. with the momentum – on a second attack. Essentially yep. exposing yourself because in theory, your opponent actually still has, has actually gained the tempo and you're going anyway.
0: Rush. Right. Rush. Right. So my, my, my take on it is a little more heretical, but I take it as being a very, uh, Joachim Meyer kind of approach of you have your provoker, which usually precedes the redoubling action. And then right. you have your taker, which is usually going to the, to the opponent's weapon, and then you have your hitter, which is the follow-up blow, which is uh kind of in in, in continuation with that action. So right, right. you know, you'd like that. So it's kind of I'm basic
1: say, for Bolognese. Yeah. I'm gonna say that the movement <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, though often your 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 provoker then with Bolognese, is often like a false edge, maybe to clear the weapon. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or,
3: yeah.
1: Um so I'm gonna say the most basic Monty the most Monty like quote is really to make a short blow followed by a long blow. Oh, okay. And the short blow should be as f- as as extended as it needs to be, essentially to look convincing. But Montias talks about making a show. He doesn't use the word faint, but he says make a show of throwing mm-hmm. a blow. Okay. Okay. And it's, this is where I see a connection. With what Valley's is doing as well in his um, Metsa Spada plays, where you make a, make a make a show of throwing a blow, but you hold your arms back or you bend your body. And then you you throw in another direction. So that can be as simple as just what he calls nodding. So literally mm-hmm. he says nodding in the direction and then throwing in the other. But it's more frequently with the poleaxe and with the sword, throwing a sharp blow, and then throwing a long an extended blow. So I I read it as it's like it's provoking, like so someone's in a guard and I think a larger, a more global view on this. Uh, in Monty's third book, which is about generalship, he talks about how one fights, and it connects to the strategy of his fighting. He talks about how first the ancients would build a fortress or a fort, which they would be secure, and they would leave small sally ports in it, which, from which they could quickly sally out, attack, and then return to safety. Yep. Hmm. So Monty's in his custodia, his guard. I, I see him as he's in his fortress. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is your opponent is also in their fortress. And how do we lure them out? So we throw that short blow, we give them something to react to that's not as it appears. As they react to it, they create an opening, and then we go for a more committed attack. And then sometimes there's a, there's a third attack, even in the fourth blow of the Levata, there's basically short, a reverse of then a reverse of Fendente with, with a passing step which is like reaching the target. And then there's a Montante to clear on the way back again. So I see that the redoublement, and he says, "Let there should be no time between the first and second blows. So that's very clearly not going back into guard. Okay.
0: Yeah. So that's, I don't think that's too dissimilar to things that we see, especially like if you look through Manciolino's first book and his kind of provocation actions, you see a lot of that where he's kind of either doing it as a feint or he's telling you to redouble on the same line, mm-hmm. um, and so usually when he does it as a redoubling action on the same line that's when I start to see it as kind of almost like a, the first one's supposed to be to take their weapon along with it right so it's more of a beating action yep. um but uh yeah that's 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 actually really interesting let's let's talk about monty's tactics a little bit cuz i feel like that's a kind of a core piece of of who he is that's something that um in particular you know, the, uh, a lot of the contemporary authors who, who speak of Monty and speak of his life actually talk about him being a master tactician too. Um, what are some, some interesting things that you've kind of gleaned from looking at his tactics, uh, portion of his book?
1: Okay. So are we talking about single combat or are we talking about mass combat at this point? Both. Yeah. Okay. Let's start, let's start with single combat because I think there are some essential principles of how he fights that carry through. Mm-hmm various weapons, various chapters, and they come up again and again and again. Um, so, and if we talk about single combat, they're kind of more tactical, like specific to to one-on-one fighting. Um, we mentioned he's very fond of rising blows, which is quite distinctive. It's, you know, your basic Fendente is what everybody throws, but your basic Montante is actually Monty's keynote, keynote attack. Um There's a chapter in book two, uh, chapter 14, on play with a sword for two hands, where he talks about this little section. I actually sent this to you, Josh. We talked about redoublement before this podcast. Well, it's a short quote, but I think it's a useful snippet of his thinking in his own words. Um, It is always useful to make a show in one place and approach from the other. Which is certainly enough when we contact the adversary sword at the first blow. Nix quickly returned with another blow to a lower place to the hands of the other, since for the most part, rising blows obstruct descending ones. So one of the key things he does, he uses rising blows to interfere with downwards blows, where he's basically targeting the hands, arms of the attacker. Um, he's also, you know, essentially faking his intentions. He's making a show going in the other direction. Um, and that particular play reminds me of, um, some people may be familiar with the uh, Punta Falsa from Fiori de Delivery, where Fiori throws a, a very demonstrative two handed horizontal blow at his opponent's sword. As it contacts, he bounces off, turns around, half swords, and steps forward with the pint on his, mm-hmm. on his left side. So, again, I see this the first blow not being committed, but making a show of being a committed blow, striking, and then immediately coming from a different quadrant. So, the change in direction, the provoking a response for which is there's a there's a planned counter already in, in motion is very much Monty. Um, another key principle he talks about is that downwards blows with relaxed arms are very hard to to stop. They're very powerful. Mm-hmm. So when we do these rising blows from below, we have to make sure we're not caught by a downwards blow. I mean, the basic parry in Monty that he describes, which comes from Prima or could come from Segunda, um, is... They stand, and as someone attacks, they turn the side that's under attack away. So you step back, the side that's forward. Now, if we're fighting with two-handed sword, I'm going to have my offside forward. So as a right-hander, my left foot's forward, my right foot's back. So Mm -hmm. the side near the opponent, the target zone, is my left side. So as they attack, I step back, rotate, and I cut down over their sword, placing the point towards their face. So if you you pollute your tanking with German longsword... Um, you might recognize that it, it seems very similar to a Zornhau to me,
3: um,
1: but I'm sure you gentlemen would know nodding of which I speak.
0: No, no, absolutely no. not. No, oh, no. What is
2: the, what is this German longsword of which you
1: speak? It, it's just a rumor I heard. It's, it's something that is that what they use to
2: stir the beer.
1: It's uh, it, uh, it's it's something that like um, you know, people who dress in tactical clothing um, practice. i told. <laughs> so, um so yeah. So, look, the basic principle is, you know, like swords of swords. You 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 engage, you gain measure, you you cut above. He doesn't use those terms, but through from his description, that's how we parry above the sword coming in, as you would, you know, like a side sword. Uh, but he he makes a clear distinction. You want to get a good contact. You're coming from above. If you're coming from below, you hold your arms back. You contact with just the point, and then you can change your direction and come back to counterattack. So if their blows in motion we can we can take we can attack into their arms as they come but if we're throwing the blow first um, you know just don't get caught campe- by downwards blow so there's this kind of chi- there's this paper scissors rock kind of calculus that's going on in his mm-hmm. in his mind i think the main thing is he's in conservative it. he fights with a big sword big swords are slow relatively speaking mm. um, you defend yourself you defend the part that's under attack you turn it away and you counter it's the same with the poleax um, you step back, you parry with the other end of the axe, then you typically you fight. Um, there's one other, I won't quote it because it would be a little tiresome to dig it up, but essentially he describes how the flow of the fight occurs. Um, he describes how when you're fighting and someone's attacking, it is good to give ground, parrying as you go, um, mm-hmm. and then stepping offline after a while, throwing for where there's an opening, but then redirecting to the next opening so when you step offline your opponent gives an opening you fake for that opening and it will be convincing because they'll feel it and it's just opened but you use that fake to draw the defense for the real opening and you go for the real opening so he's kind of thinking two steps ahead and that's that's his like that's his basic strategy so it's like throw fake throw throw for the hit um i think there's there's something else that's coming to mind that's sort of relevant to that as well which i guess is that um he yeah i think no i think i think i've kind of said it already in terms of it's basically be conservative use fakes to open your opponent um and and parry everything he um he's not one for
0: like stesso tempo attacks right interesting <laughs> Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really awesome. So, if, if people are interested in, we're going to kind of transition into some other aspects of, of Monty's life and, and talk about the strategic aspects as well. But if people are interested in um, in learning more about his fencing in particular, what are some resources that they can they can look at?
1: Okay, so um, I have my my current translation of Monty up on my website, which is mikerendergast.ie, ie for Ireland. Um, so that should be easy to find. Um, I have occasionally post some some stuff on the Historical Combat Academy website, which is the Hema Historical Fencing Group I run in Dublin. That's um, H Combat Academy um, on Facebook. Um, so I guess you can you can link that stuff in your show notes as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep.
1: Um, I guess say other places to check out. Obviously, Jeff Forging has a translation out. Um, I have to say I haven't read it, and this is mostly because I'm still tweaking my edit, and I just don't want to pick mm-hmm. up accidental like I I, it's the book I most want to read when I've sort of finished this last edit. Uh Mm, but I don't want to read it now because I just want to make sure my translation is my translation. I'm not like accidentally cribbing ideas from Jeff from um he's uh he's an author I really respect. I love his Maya stuff. Um so I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing what he's put together. Um I think we had it we both kind of met virtually at the Monty Symposium in the University of Tours in twenty eighteen, which was sort of an academic meets him event there was a day of mm-hmm. academic presentations and there was a, a day of classes so i got to present monty's single sword and there was classes on monty's weapons so at the time jeff said that his translation was kind of what monty really like meant to say and he said that our translation was he kind of says exactly what the latin says um which i take as a compliment um uh, my, <laughs> my 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 goal is it's a first translation um I don't want to layer too much interpretation. I'm trying to translate as literally as possible for like interpretation purposes. So I think, I think there will be value reading both actually, because they're both coming out from a different angle. Um, yeah. But yeah. Otherwise there's a few people. There's, um, there's South arms, Goddard de Croce in Brescia in Italy, who those guys, Roberto Gotti, Moreno de Ricci, um, some others, they work on, on interpretation of Monty's 200 sword. Um, there's a uh, Keith Farrell from the UK. is actually teaching Monty's two-handed sword. At an event in in Wales in a few months. I know um, Fran Locrata has done some pole acts from him at fight camp last year. So Monty's getting out there. There's a Spanish group I haven't made contact with yet that are doing some Monty. So, but it's 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 pretty niche so far. I'm working on uh, getting the word out more. Uh, but I would I would I would say. Um, I'm going to be putting some more sort of stuff up on my website, which is mikeprendagust.e, sort of a breakdown of what's in the Collector Nia, and maybe some stuff about like sort of some, some essential like background on Monty as well, which might help people get going. Nice.
0: That's awesome.
3: Yeah.
0: Did yeah. you get a chance well, to read Hopefully we can get
2: the uh, word out about Monty.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Did you did you get a chance to read Ian Davis's stuff that he did with um, in the Vadi translation?
1: Yes, at the, at the rare. Yeah. So I, I pretty much agree with that translation. Obviously, I, I tweet. Every every translation has got like different different decisions on wording, but I I like I agree with what he's putting out there, so I think that's that's good stuff.
0: Nice, cool. Um, yeah, right. So, um, one of the things I'm going to bring up in a podcast that we've already recorded, but it, it's relevant to what we're talking about now. Uh, Carl uh, von klashwitz says in uh, in his uh, you know work on on war, uh, he talks about how a duel is nothing more than uh, or he says warfare is nothing more than a duel on a grander skate uh, stage. Right. And so you were talking about how Pietro Monti, his tactics kind of seem like they're built out of his, his fencing principles. And you could even argue that his wrestling is, or his, his fencing principles kind of come from his wrestling principles. Right. So um, how does, how does that kind of show? Cause you know, one of the things that, that Steven and I have been doing a lot of is really trying to learn more about and and kind of, Bring a lot of the fencing aspects that we're learning through HEMA into the academic sphere of of looking at some of these big battles that are going on throughout the Renaissance and and trying to correlate those things, not only understanding how the weapons are used, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also understanding how the the, the, kind of the mindset of like the tactics were kind of developed. And I think Monty's a really important source for this. So how do you see that kind of playing out for Monty?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic. And it's something that Musashi says in his book as well that like fighting one or fighting Manny are in many ways the, the same thing. Um, yes. So what does Monty... It's hard to say what's the chicken and the egg. Monty's an accomplished leader of, of fighting troops from, from his 20s, at least. Um, and he's an accomplished fighter with, with weapons, particularly on, on foot, though obviously he has great skills in horseback as well. So where, which, which influences the other, I can't answer, but I can say there, there are common threads for sure that tie them together. Um, temperament is one thing. Monty makes a big deal about understanding the temperaments of the opponents, which are you know, the, um, the classic um, I guess ancient Greek medicinal temperaments, the humoral theory. Uh, so okay. someone is sanguine or choleric or, or so forth, and that affects um, his ability to fight, um, his staying power, his sense of initiative. So Monty has a section in, 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 in his first book where he talks about, like, what what place in the fight people of different temperaments should be, for instance.
2: Right, right. That so, was really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, it made a lot
2: of sense about him as a military Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. No, I, I agree. And, like, he comes back to this. And so Monty has three books as in the Collectinia. So it's, it's three distinct books, as he says. So the first book is, is – this is a very general description. Um, is more about principles general, uh, and, t- and includes a lot of work on the temperaments. The second book is where we get the kind of the historical fencing nerdy detail, mostly. And the third book is about generalship, which focuses on interesting things. Sadly, says very little about tactics. It gives an example of how to fight the tactics of the Germans, but it's more of an example. Of, here's a tactical problem. Here's how you solve it, rather than you know how we do with tactics in general. Uh, but he talks about temperament in in that section. So a lot of that book is more about HR issues, it's about choosing choosing the right soldiers, what are the characteristics of a good general, um, right. what place in the battle people have. So often it's kind of more like high level discussion rather right. than mm-hmm. issue-gritty tactics, which is quite different from his single combat, which is quite in depth about how we fight with a sword on a particular in a particular situation. Um, yeah. So, so that's it, yeah. temperaments are one major issue, which I think we can talk about in some more depth. Um, the other thing is that idea of where you first defend yourself, you make a fortress, and you fight from the fortress. So
3: mm-hmm. that's
1: definitely mm-hmm. a, a key point. Um and it's Fix also and pretty, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's also very clear that like Sun Tzu, he recommends like calculations are a big deal. Like he's he's pre planning, he's thinking, he's coming up with stratagems for dealing with the situation long before it happens. And I guess that's characteristic of a professional soldier in a in a in a very militaristic culture. So you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be around, you're gonna have a long career. You uh, you know you 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 plan your moves and you you use your strategy. In fact, you know the words he uses for his wrestling techniques is studia, or sometimes translated mm-hmm. as tricks, but I think uh, strategy yeah. is a pretty good translation as well for that. So it's kind of yeah. it's all a bit like it all connects.
3: Yeah,
2: well, I think one of the interesting things about his whole thing on complexions, which I think when I read it a while back, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. But then when he actually talks about using it to put to basically decide where to put people in a combat, it makes sense with like, well, let's say you're a general as we're running across in our historical work. You suddenly have a thousand peasants and you have one day to turn these guys into a unit to go to battle. You're looking, okay, well, we just got to figure out how can we roughly sort these guys. Right. So they at least just what is the right place for them to stand? And suddenly, you you know, you need some really quick metric, and then right. it, that actually made a lot of sense in the historical context of his time and his responsibilities.
1: Totally, and it doesn't just apply to to troops; it applies to animals. There's an entire se- chapters in, a collect in the collection here about how we identified characteristics of of, of of well-formed animals. Mm-hmm. So we can use the same. Thing. So, in the in the absence of a sorting hat, um, you can of course you can look at <laughs> you can look at the appearance. of of
3: individuals
1: Mm. and sort of you can you can make a lot of determinations because certain characteristics that certain temperaments should have for instance phlegmatics tend to be heavier softer slower in their movements so you can kind of go look at that but you know this may sound odd to modern humans until you read a book about traditional indian medicine which has like three um forget the technical term but three kind of three elements there's Kappa, Ita, Bata, for instance, or um, traditional Chinese medicine, which has five elements. Um, so the Western tradition has four elements. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, used, it's, it's basically what I, I was joking earlier when I said it's kind of HR stuff, but it really is. It's like um, when recruiters will personality type people to get them to the right roles. And back in the Renaissance Italy, Monty was doing pretty much the same, only on, on in terminology. <laughs>
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that I find is really interesting and this, this might be kind of veering away from where I think this is, this is headed, but um, you know, when it comes to his tactics in particular, um, the you, the really interesting thing about Monty that I found in kind of in researching uh, his life is that a lot of his tactical tricks or stratagems that he kind of innate like talks about using, he actually used in the battlefield. So like we right. have anecdotal yes. evidence yes, yes. of yes. all of these things happening and all of them being effective. So like, you know, one of the things he talks about kind of this uh, combined uh, cavalry and infantry tactic, something that he probably gleaned from, you know, reading the life of Alexander, you know, uh, like Arian's life of Alexander. And if he, if he could, I don't know, I don't know if it was around at that time or not, but you know, this is something that, that Alexander was famous for, but it's something that in, in his, uh, right after his exercise section in the Collectania, he talks about how to sort of coordinate arms. And um, when he talks about like vaulting and stuff like that, obviously that's all about horsemanship. But this is one of the things where he talks about how do you have somebody on foot run alongside a horse? So if yes. you have two horses running in parallel, then you would have that person basically like lift himself up off the stirrups of the horses yeah. and that's how they can kind of like travel Ooh. along in between the horses without like basically either the horses running away from them or anything like that you know yeah, yeah. The, and so
1: it's on the stirrup yeah
0: yeah and so he actually uses that he he uses that in the uh in one of the Florentine Florentine peace and wars uh where he uses combined arms and he actually uses this tactic and then um of course you know in and Again, this kind of like, this goes back, like if, if he was a, a, it seems like he was a student of history. It seems like he was a very, yeah. you know, knowledgeable man who had studied a lot um, and especially had studied the classics. But one of the things that he talks about is, um, is using longer spears. So when he was fighting the the Germans in the Alps, one of the tricks that he used is he was like, okay, so we're about to go fight the Germans. So he's sitting there, he's with uh, D'Alviano and he's with Mancino and he's like, here's what we're going to do. The Lands Connects use pikes that are this long. We're going to use pikes that are about three or four feet longer. And then we're going to have the reach. And then we'll use whatever sort of tactics we need to. And that's how they beat them. Uh, they basically you know, ground them to a standstill. And then the, the Germans had to be aggressive to try to get in and within the reach of their pikes. And, of course, they're in this narrow confine of, of fighting in, in these mountain passes. And they couldn't. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a tactic that goes back to, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Epaminondas, and I don't know if Cornelius Nepos had been translated at that point, but um, uh, Epaminondas in particular, uh, one of the great um, advents of, of his age, which actually he passed on to Alexander the Great. So this is something, again, that would have come up from Alexander if Monty had read about Alexander, um, was when he was fighting against the Spartans, especially at the Battle of Leuctra the The key tactical element that he incorporated with it with his troops is he he made his his dory or his uh his spear um that they were using four feet longer than that of the Spartans so okay. instead of using an eight foot they were using a twelve foot and so when they engaged with the Spartans they had more reach uh, and of course there were there were more tactical elements that were kind of came into play in that battle but you know these are things that you know we're, we're kind of sunny it just seems like Monty was so well read, and so uh, you know involved in in studying history and, and kind of applying some of these tricks in a modern age, which is is really fascinating, and I, I think something that to me was really striking and, and really interesting.
1: So. Definitely, and it's worth it's worth recognized that Monty wrote other books that are kind of focusing more on what we call natural philosophy. He's mm-hmm. he did some treatises on the um, ballistics of cannonballs and so forth. Uh, which Leonardo Mm -hmm. also writes about. Um, Yeah, so he's definitely like a Renaissance philosopher. And uh, like he's, you know, definitely call him a natural philosopher in terms of he writes about the nature of the world and how things work as well. So he's not exclusively a military man, just the collectonia is the, you know, collection of military exercises, essentially. So this book is. Um, Interesting you picked up on that thing about the Germans as well, because this is a crossover between very close connection between Leonardo's writing and illustrations and Pietro Monte because Monty talks in his, this is the example, his tactical example in the third book where against the order of the Germans, the Germans Monty describes as crossing their long lances or pikes like uh, oh, yeah. cross. And there's a, there's an excerpt from a writing in one of Leonardo's notebooks about describing the order of the Germans where they, they weave their, their pikes together and place the butt on the ground and support the rest with their hands. So, um, this, is, this situation is described as the tactical trolling because that resists penetration into their formation by cavalry or by mm-hmm. infantry. And so then Monty comes up with two solutions for for dealing with that. One would be on flat ground to use essentially armoured cars, Carrier armati, which um, are described by Leonardo famously and illustrated, or side mm-hmm. wagons or whatever you want to call them. And the other if the train is not so suitable, which is almost everywhere, um, to just use longer, longer lances um, to therefore just outrange the, the formation. So, uh, and there's an interesting point. There was um, there's actually one of the lieutenants, uh, someone who was a lieutenant of Monte, um, I'm trying to think of which battle it was at. Maybe it was at the, at the battle-, battle
0: of Ravenna. Are you thinking about Pedro Navarro? yes the spanish is, yeah
1: yes he used those and i think um, does, yeah. 12 yes against german mercenaries yeah. working for louis the, the french king so so yeah he mentions this in the Collectanea, but it happens in two different occasions once by you know i guess it's a subordinate one time subordinate of his and once he uses it himself the other formation so it's great there's this sort of and, and again, it's Leonardo has. A, I remember seeing a Leonardo illustration of this German order as well, so it seems like there's this cross connection between Leonardo and Monty and Monty's military practice that is really interesting as well. And of course, famously, well, Leonardo, kind of... Leonardo goes to Monty to talk, to ask him about the flight of darts or javelins.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like. That? Yeah, yeah, it seems like the Leonardo and, and Monty had kind of a, a special relationship, and. Um, to provide a little bit of background for people, too, at this point, um, well, I guess I guess Monte, Leonardo hadn't quite come into uh, under the influence of, of Cesare Borgia yet, had he? That well, would so be like 1496.
1: I think so it's like it's f- 1491, he does some sort of pageant for this Ford says, I think that, I forget what it's yeah, called. Yeah, one of the weddings. Yeah. Yeah, Da
2: Vinci did one for one of the weddings. I think it was for... Beatrice, but yeah, or maybe it was for John Galeazzo Sforza's way.
1: And I'm pretty sure that in Leonardo has this famous sort of resume he writes to the Sforza's um, about what he can do. And he mentions things like, you know, making armored cars for combat is, is one of those things. So, right. again, that ties in as, as a skill set of his. Um, but it seems like, you know, the Sforza's kept a court. Uh, in Milan of sort of subject matter experts in art, in military arts, in physical training, and, and you know, classical history and so forth. And so they would have mixed in similar circles. And we know that San Severino who's Monty's patron, commissioned Leonardo to do at least, I think, one pageant, which might have been mid- early 1490s again. So there's definitely connections between all of them. Um and it seems that, you know, Monty is apparently the military authority that Leonardo goes to, like, all we know about the flight of darts is there's this note in the Codex Atlanticus about just it's like a note to ask Master Monty about this, like there's no more, Um, but he does have illustrations of, like, javelins as well that kind of line up with Monty's descriptions in general terms Um, and there's one other interesting thing, there's a a French researcher, Pascal Briost, who's written quite extensively on Monty Leonardo, Monty's military career and he mentions how there is a, there's an unpublished, there's an account of an unpublished folio or small book by Leonardo, which deals with the subject of fighting on foot against horsemen, which is illustrations. It's lost, but this is a topic of one of the chapters of Eclectonia as well. So it's hard to imagine Leonardo writing that book in Milan and not asking Monty about it or getting advice from Monty on right. that topic. You know, it's awesome. even perhaps, you know, it's even a collaboration to some degree that Monty's influencing what Leonardo's you know, writing about. Um, that's just a cool idea. We've got nodding hard on yeah, that. That's a, I, it's I a really great idea. idea. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea. All
2: right, so I think we got we got about half an hour left. So we got to we got to start powering through, guys.
3: Uh-huh. Okay. Okay.
2: Perfect. So Monty is a a great source for describing the details of armor, what have you learned about Renaissance warfare from looking at Pietro Monti's
1: armor section? Um, that there's a lot of it, and um, he has some very particular ideas. Uh, so his armor section is incredibly detailed. There are many chapters, several chapters go through in detail from armor from the legs up literally and go through each piece. Um, so we learn a lot about the overlapping nature of armor and the specialization of Italian armor in certain ways. Um, for instance, that the, the, the palm of the left gauntlet. Should have mail for grasping a weapon, but the palm of the right gauntlet should be unimpeded. Maybe just a light leather for, you know, gripping your own hilt. Um, there, we know that um, Monty doesn't like the large Italian pauldrons. He figures that they're they're too encumbering. He likes the German style. bit heretical, okay. but you know, um, it never works. He um, Monty personally prefers fighting in mail than in plate, and he mm-hmm. describes how you. How you fight in a in a duel against a heavily armored opponent, which is basically as long as you're not too impeded, you should wear um, lorica of mail and mm-hmm. maintain your distance from your opponent until essentially he tires himself out, and then when they're <laughs> tired, you can go in and defeat him.
2: Sounds like a, a famous <laughs> duel from a TV show.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is with Game of Thrones right now. So yeah, um, but yeah, this is his recommendation. Um, he has a lot of practical advice, obviously that you know if you're stronger than somebody when you're in armor out, you know you should just crush them against the barrier um Mm -hmm. actually connects with musashi in in a single way as well um obviously if you're lighter or less strong you should never get into close measure with them at all um but um yeah on armor specifically like he deals with specific armor for the joust and there's this very italian concept that sometimes we can wear hidden armor or hidden supports for say our lance we can wear them such a way that they're not obvious, which I think it's important because it might look less heroic to you know to have a, have an artificial aid for like you know mounting your lance or um, lots of detailed description against for jousting of like um, ablative armor that you wear for the first pass and you right. pull a cord and the breastplate separates and drops off so you're unimpeded uh, practical recommendations for fighting about when it is good to wear a visor down and up so essentially for Monty, the visor is mostly for dealing with crossbows and arrows. That when you get to mm-hmm. close combat, it's often better to have breath than to right. and, and have vision. And that if you have armored, especially if you've got armored gauntlets, you can very easily protect your face when you're fighting. So Monty, yeah. when you visualize him at Anyodello, his armor red with blood, cutting to left and right, you pro- can probably see his face. And oh, he's
2: yeah. So you throw your blows in front of your eyes and that will protect... Basically, if you're swinging in well, front well, of that well, line and you, closing are, the are line to your visor,
1: yeah, you are like rotating oh. through the center line for sure. Um, Dude, but also being if, on
2: the receiving end of that would be terrible. Yeah.
1: Terrible also in, in more close combat, grappling with daggers or warhammers, which are an right. absolute favorite on horseback, I have to say. Right. Um, like you can you, you parry with the gauntlet, it's like a shield, you know, your whole arm is, is essentially taking the place of a shield in, in right. earlier centuries. Yep. So, right. using that gauntlet is a protection is a defensive device and you can also grip with it. And then you're, you're fighting back. So, uh, we get a sense of control. I think temperantia. So temperantia is the name of my sword, which I had made to like replicate Monty's descriptions of swords. Um, temperantia is the principle of moderation or temperance Mm -hmm. or having an even temper. Um, Temperancia, there's a there's a um, there's a chapter why Temperantia is better than Furia, or when when Temperancia is better than Furia. So sometimes mm-hmm. Fury is useful when the opponent is on the back foot, or there's a I guess there's a gap in a wall and right. you have to pile mm-hmm. all your force into it. But um, those who just keep going swinging are like um, Grotomoso. They're like blacksmiths hammering on an anvil, and they leave themselves open to defeat. So right. Monty's right. Yeah. very much about bringing calm and balance to the most intense and violent and threatening situation. So I, can, I like okay. his, his, his this kind of cold-bloodedness about, I'm in the middle of a fight, People are try, skilled opponents, professionals are trying to kill me. I've got my visor up because I'm more in control. Um, yeah. He's fighting a professional fighter in best armor money can buy, which is like Italian you know, field plays of the time. I'm wearing chainmail because I'm trusting in my skill. When you fight on horseback, um, you should never agree in a one-on-one duel that the horses are not to be killed.
3: <laughs>
1: because right. if someone has a stronger mount than you, they can push a mount around, they can overbear you with the force, and essentially right. it detracts from his your personal skill as a fighter. And I think that adds a random element is to be avoided. Mm-hmm. So he even ha- says, you know, if, if, if you absolutely cannot kill the horses, you can slam the chamfron with the with the pommel of your weapon, and nobody can say that this is this is breaking the rules, just to make the horse shy away. Okay.
0: Um,
1: so it's about keeping your focus on control in the most dangerous situation.
0: That's that's actually really interesting too, because I think one of the things that really struck me about Anglo's uh, piece on Monty was the fact where uh, they were they started talking about um, Monty's ideas around the duel in particular, right? So one of the things that, you know, especially the whole reason why we started this entire research project to begin with was to look at Guido Rangone and, and Ugo Pepoli and their duel, which is fought with sword and gauntlet and an mm-hmm. armored gauntlet and that's it, right? And one of the things that Monty says is he he absolutely despises any duel that is basically not done in like full armor and is not like a representation of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was something that was really striking to me, but like hearing you say that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, I mean, if, if that's kind of what he thought is like a duel should be re- a recreation of this concept of the battlefield, then, you know, putting limits on things that could happen on the battlefield, like targeting a horse or something like that, you know, it makes, it makes perfect mm-hmm. sense.
1: I, I also think if that's your professional environment, it's probably suits you to fight in that manner.
3: Yeah, right, right. yeah.
0: <laughs> you're kind of. It's like you're setting the tone, right? You're yeah, just like, uh-huh, right. you know, I, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wonder. I wonder how Galeazzo San Servino felt about that, since he was only good with the lance.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it might have been because he had artificial aid too. So you know. <laughs>
0: exactly. Um, going, now
2: Baldassare Castiglione refers to Monte as also being a master of horsemanship and tactics. What are some of the highlights you found from his sections on horsemanship and battlefield tactics, besides swinging around wildly and covering himself in blood?
1: Swinging around with temperance and measure and covering. With temperance and measure and covering himself
2: (laughs) in blood. right. My apologies.
1: Um, (laughs) Monty is sadly lacking in in a lot of detailed tactics, but who isn't? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an alleged book on military exercises, which um, Pascal Briest. Believe's multi Roadbook, which has never been published. Um, if it exists, I would love to read it. Uh, but what we've Same. got on the collectoria is um, he does talk about tactics in terms of skirmishes. He talks about how light fighters should fight, um, mm-hmm. how skirmishing should work on horseback and on foot, um, mm-hmm. like the movement, you know, keeping control, making. Uh, so there's a fair bit of like on skirmishing. Um, there's not anything mandingly really, at all about, you know, close-in fighting, formations, flanking. He just gives that one example of how to fight the Germans. Otherwise, it's principles such as be in your fortress, Sally Fort, come back, cover yourself, protect yourself. He just talked about um, just fighting against skirmishes with crossbows and arrows, and just gives us some really nice on-the-spot viewpoints, such as how you know it's it's easy to see the, the, the travel of an arrow or a javelin and avoid it as long as you're paying attention, that you're not really at hazard, that it's... Uh, it's, it's guns that are more threatening because you can't see that you can't mark the flight of the projectile. Um, ah. um, so you said horsemanship. Horsemanship has got a lot of really, that feels like real practical, I was there stuff about jousting, such as where to aim the lance when you're jousting. There are some who aim the lance in front of the target to be ready for it. Some who like follow behind mm-hmm. the target. You should also always keep your lance exactly on your target as you move so that you you hit it at the right point. Um, just 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 lots of little detail about how you your weight is sitting back. You, basically, they have these very high saddles which have arzons mm-hmm. at the back or arches which you sit into, and they take your body. They have like leg defenses on the front, but you're sitting kind of upright, slightly back in the arzon, But at the moment of impact, your, your weight comes forward, so you're in a brace position. A brace, so there's yeah. a lot of a lot of really nice what you look at, you know, when you're when when you're when you're when you're jousting so there's a lot of nice technical detail that i think would be of extreme interest to modern jousters uh, i'm sure that i'm sure they're reading monty have some i've posted it to some groups um so yeah light horses and use of javelins for skirmishers the geneta style fighting which is a very spanish thing which i guess initially came from the from the moors and which was adopted by the spanish in in, in conflict with them um so when Monty talks about his five different types of spear, five different lengths of spear, the genetta is like the, the shortest spear, which is essentially the length mm-hmm. of the sword. Um, so he has techniques for throwing the spear, which are obviously very okay. battlefield related. Um, when someone's throwing a spear at you, if they're right-handed, you should go to their their right side because they, their, the spear will move to the left. Whereas if you dodge mm-hmm. to the left, it will yeah. track you. Um, right. Just lots of technical detail on throwing and so forth. Um, not so much on grand tactics, I have to say. Um, you know, more about skirmishing, more about covering yourself. Um, yeah, but quite a lot of detail on horsemanship and stuff. I'm, you know, about the saddle, the tack, the equipment, how you, how you, how the tack goes around the horse, the different types of bit and bridle, how you use that, how you control the horse, how you hold the weapon. Like, there, there's an amazing amount of detail for for those people who do equestrian stuff.
2: Cool. We'll have to talk about that when we get another one of them on.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, um, one of the really cool things that Monty gives us the guide to proportionality of weapons. So you've already kind of touched on like the two handed sword, um, but for the 16th century, this is actually pretty important um, to us is because he's a contemporary of Manchilino and Morazzo and perhaps the Anonymous. So, right. you know, when we're looking at things like pole arms, for example, I know that Monty is kind of the source for trying to understand like the proportionality of, of pole arms. So w- what are some of the things that he says about that?
1: Okay. So on pole arms, um, the classic pole arm that Monty uses as the exemplary is the pole axe, but it's essentially the same length as the halberd and most of the other pole arms. So a polar Many people the poleaxe is as high as you can reach in the air, uh, but a little more is better. So I imagine maybe a pamo or, or or less, you know. So for me that's just over seven foot, seven and a half foot in old money. Um, forget what that is in meters. Um, so it's it's quite long. It's not a, it's not a poleaxe from Fiore or from most, like medieval illustrations. It's it's a long, primarily trusting weapon. It's it's you know it's got it's got the classic hammerhead, rear spike, top spike, butt spike, um, but it's similar proportions to a halberd. In fact, he doesn't really say anything about a halberd except it kind of works like a poleaxe. Um, so I think has probably had more sense of tradition and prestige, even though halberds might be what you'd see on the field more in general. Um, the ronka is slightly longer. Uh, the Ronka is being longer. Doesn't use the the contus or the butt at all. It's entirely used with mm-hmm. the with the weapon end. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the spatum, of course, it's like a triple spike. It's only used for trusting. You don't really cut with the spatum. Uh, so there's a little detail. It says a lot about the partisan, um, which again works like the polax, but I guess the partisan is essentially the same length as the Polaxe. So it's as high as you can reach. It's it's an area of some interest to me because because I actually have an um I have a antique Ronka on my, my Ooh, door. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. What a beaut. Uh, that's beautiful. It, obviously, the half-distant period, um, but that's that's from dates about 1500, and I want to mount it on a correct length. So I've got to kind of overly haft it, and I'm trying to figure out what does a little more mean. I was hoping you guys would have some measures for me.
2: <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but that is a beautiful Ronka, man.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's actually, yeah. The, the little lugs of the base were kind of broken off, which maybe why it was, I got it as like, um, after an auction was complete, it hadn't sold. I'd missed the auction, but it was like, it was there and it, it spoke to me. So I, yeah, I got it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really got elegant form. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, so that that one's a little longer than a polax, correctly speaking. Um, Maybe you'll yeah, be also,
2: lucky one day, and somebody will break into your house, and you'll have a chance to use that bad boy. I, I know. I, just, <laughs> I hope. I hope
1: me plenty of warning because it's going to take a bit of reach.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, Monty gives us some like some proportions about spears as well. I think translating it back, it, it came in about I guess it was like essentially like twelve foot. That's almost like four meters for like the long long lance, um, mm-hmm. yeah. short punetta lance. The shortest, like javelin, is essentially your nose or eyes, which is the Mm -hmm. same as the swords. It's about, for me, that's 1.7 meters, say 1.6 for a lot of people. So proportionality is important. The weapons are proportional to the bearer. Um, With the swords particularly, he says that um, essentially you're using one as long as you can use without impeding yourself. Uh, If it's much longer, it's likely to hit the ground. Though those who know what they're doing can swing back and forth even with the long sword. But. Um, there's some interesting measures for single-handed swords, which is that the length—a long sword is better than a short sword, which he gets into right. in some detail because of initiative and so forth. A light sword is better than a heavier sword, where it's more quick to move and redouble your actions. Um, so he actually likes swords that have a longer hilt and a lighter pommel, so we got better balance without adding weight. Right. Um, the 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 hilt across of the sword should be wide so protect the arm. And there are quite a few moves in Monty, where he distinctly mentions like rotating the crossguard so it's horizontally or at an angle protecting you from an mm-hmm. incoming cut. So we can see how the weapon formation works with the fighting. Um, yeah, and the sword should be... So the sword should be as long a single-handed sword as long as you can draw, right? That if sounds you right. From its, If you draw your scabbard, it's the right length. So he's he's into reach, he's into lightness, he's into speed, mm-hmm. Um very much in his weapons. Yeah. So yeah. That, that kind of really
2: between a sword and a rapier, you you need to be able to draw a sword and a rapier. You have time to be able to pull it out so you can get into your duel.
0: It kind of correlates a little bit too, with what we see from somebody like, like Manchilino. you know, I mean, in terms of mm-hmm. like the brief, the brief discussions that we get from Manchilino on the, the length and proportionality of arms, he talks about, you know, spears being longer than partisans, uh, which, yeah. you know, that kind of tracks with what Monty describes and, um, you know talking about the emphasis of, of using lighter weapons for f- fights that matter versus using heavier weapons for training. Um, yeah,
1: Monty is a chapter on how, how to make any weapon lighter. Interesting, <laughs> right. which is you train cool. for two days, two days before you duel with a heavier weapon.
2: Oh, right, right, yeah,
0: yeah. that makes that, sense. That <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, as a kid, you know, growing up, um, I think most, uh, at least maybe, maybe just in, in the Southeast most American boys end up growing up playing baseball in some capacity. I don't know. Steven, did you play baseball as a kid?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, is there any kid in America that doesn't play baseball growing up? It's like, I right. don't want to play baseball. Sorry. Too bad, son.
0: <laughs> so all of us, all of us end up playing baseball. But one of the things that they always have is like, when you're a kid, they always put this, uh, this weighted donut in the batter's box and you put yep. that on a bat yeah. and you swing your bat with a weighted donut oh, before you actually go up and hit. Right. So right. when you're in, when you're, when you're off and you're kind of uh, on deck and you're, you're warming up to, to go bat, you're always using a heavier path than you're actually going to use. And, this that's something that's always kind of like struck me. And I, I realize that it's a very American notion. So I don't know, maybe even, <laughs> it, it just seems so logical every time I see that from like these, these, uh you know, fencing masters, I'm just like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. What we did in baseball as kids. Yeah.
1: Well, like, you know, he just Vig- Vig- and- Vig- yeah. mentions that as well. in De re Militari, So like the Legionnaires trained with double weight weapons and shields. Uh, Monty doesn't recommend doing oh, yeah. all the time. okay. Monty doesn't recommend yeah. doing it all the time though. Cause you'll, you know, You'll, you'll, you won't learn the right reactions but just for a couple of days, once you know what you're doing before the actual event it's, it's a, an added assist
3: Right,
2: so once you actually have form, it's worth doing to build up muscle and speed but right. it's not worth training at all the time because you don't want to build the form for a weapon that's heavier than you're
1: actually exactly. using. Exactly. I think for modern view, we would be concerned with overuse injuries as well
0: Right
2: Alright, you want to take that next question, Joshua? That's a, it looks like a fun one
0: yeah, so um, we're kind of we're getting into a, a little bit of the, the looser questions here. So, how do you think Monty fits into the greater HEMA landscape? Is he just a hipster subset like Vadi, or is he the Rosetta Stone for Bolo Jocks? How should we view Monty? I mean, this guy trained the greatest knight in all of Italy in the fourteenth or in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, and was considered one of the best swordsmen on the peninsula.
1: Yeah, I think Monty's got a lot to tell us in the way that that value I found in Vadi. That he he writes a lot about what happens in a fight, so I think a lot of his writing, once you get past the chapters on the, the leveller of the sword, it's just it's about fighting. It's not so sword specific, and often in the same chapter you will talk about with a two-handed sword or with a single sword, or sometimes he'll mention a poleaxe, or he'll mention a random being on your back on the ground under a horseman and what to do. But like there's a sense of there's a, a universality to his advice in fighting that I think is useful for it, like any system. Um, you don't have to be doing, you have to be, well, you know, even doing Italian HEMA is hipsterish in the greater scheme of things. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a <laughs> are a story, you know? um, But like, there's a lot to be gained from, I think, studying and reading Monty and just, this is a professional fighter who had a long and distinguished career, fought many battles, heroically fought many battles, was at the front end, mm. like many times, walk and the walk. He survived those battles. He has something to tell us, you know. There's That's a good one, point. I think
2: is he the only one that we have corroboration for that has actually been in a fight? Um, I mean, Fury claims to have been in fights, right. but I don't know if we have actual corroboration from an outside source.
1: No, we know we know that Fury's. We have corroboration for Fury's famous students for sure, which is cred. Yes. Defeating Brusico is is cred for sure. Yeah, um, yeah,
3: yeah,
1: but um, but not for Fury himself. Yeah, Monty's like. In his day, kind of different from that, in his day, perhaps one of the most famous masters of arms ever. Right. Like he, yeah, he was known, absolutely you know, like he was a famous general. So it goes beyond being like a military trainer. That's what he, he's mentioned by um Castiglione as. But um, you know, he's he's a famous general and a fighter. So he was obviously massively well taught about his day. Um bit 15, uh, let me see, 1570s. He was called one of the first infantrymen. He's remembered as one of the first infantrymen of Italy in his time. So he was considered like famously a leader. So, how does he fit in? Well, how is he useful? I guess is a way of phrasing that question. Um, I think he gives great insight into two-handed sword, um, which is only two-handed sword, but also into single-handed sword. I mean, the class you attended, Josh, was actually in in single-handed sword.
0: You know, right. so yep.
1: it might have been built as a side sword it's not a distinction that Monty makes and side sword is kind of a modern historiographic term anyway but it's a single-handed sword Monty's fighting techniques totally gel with an approach like a Bayonese approach to single-handed sword fighting uh, Meyer I feel a lot of that sort of continuous flow actions um, so I think his strategy how he fights how he redoubles attacks how he faints how he puts things together um, it takes a bit of interpretation um, it's not the easiest book to read and figure out from scratch. But if you decide to focus on the sword technique, for instance, read through it with sword in hand, you'll get a sense of the flow and the movement. And it actually can I think it can add a lot. It gives another lens which to, to appreciate fighting. Uh, and I think that's the, the biggest contribution of Monty to the HEMA field is it's not just for people who want to do Monty's art exclusively, um, which even I don't, as I mentioned. Um right. so yep. when I fight when I fight longsword now I do I pretty much fight monty that's what I'm working on that's my my mission is to translate it right. um I'm fi- I'm making some progress post pandemic that I've I, I did a lot of solo drill in pandemic and I'm getting the moves to come out so I you know I'm I'm getting somewhere in longsword tournaments now using monty for the first time which is very gratifying of course it's like
0: That's it's, awesome. Right. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Um but, but you know I I think it's just it's there's a lot to be learned and it's just he does a lot of stuff that's mentioned in other manuals, but maybe not in great depth. And things like just even rising blows that it can be incredibly useful, you don't see them a lot. You don't see them a lot in tournaments. Right. Obviously, they're mentioned Unterhaus and um and uh, Satani and what have you, but like it just doesn't come out so much. Um so yeah, I just think he's really worth reading for his tactical brain and how he approaches the fight. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. And also the other thing is just for people who are interested in the culture, the reality, the experience of the time—all these like nuggets of first-person perspective, like what it is to be on yeah. a horse, charging with a yes. lance, um, how you move an armor, why you take the visor up. Um, there's so much, like, like just those little nuggets that you you had to have been there to write this stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, so that that that's really that's what I came to Hema for. It's like how, get inside of how did they really fight? Why did they really experience this? Hopefully, without you know the pain, anger, and you know aggression, but like right, just but getting a sense what was sense it feeling, of what
3: was it like? Yeah, 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 yeah the totally. Of
1: that, you know, so so Monty Monty helps me get there. You know, so I, I really enjoy just that perspective and hearing his voice um, as he explains these.
0: Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting because I think a lot of what you you kind of described about like how he describes the fight, um, I think in particular is is what made. Uh, for a lot of people reading the introduction of the Anonimo for the first time in English uh, as revolutionary as it was, because I think it changed a lot of people's perceptions of how Bolognese fighting was what should be conducted uh, because they had a better perspective of like how the fight progressed where before just looking at Manchilino and Morazzo, it was kind of, it was missing where when we had the Anonimo, people could read it and they could read what the, what, how those tactics and how, the, the language that we see described in the individual plays actually plays out in a tactical paradigm and it made it revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, continuing on here, uh, caller sanguine phlegm melancholy uh, you've been a pretty avid listener to the podcast. So I want you to assign Steven and I each a, uh, a temper.
1: Okay. Well, well, I think, you know, I'm, um, I'm not a, a Gallianic, uh, philosopher and I don't play one on the internet. So you can help me out here. We can maybe help your listenership figure out how they can do this for themselves <laughs> as well. Okay. So I think it's important yeah. when we're, when we're approaching this, the first one we look at visual <laughs> cues because if we're going to sort to okay. thousand troops before sundown, we got to be efficient. right? right? So let's, let's start yeah. with Josh. Okay. So, so if you have kind of like a 10 face, which I'm, I'm going to perhaps a long neck or longer than average, that kind of hints towards color for a start, which is the, which, <laughs> okay. which is the element of fire. Um, now, uh, Steven, would you say that Josh has a sweet voice that, that carries well? Yeah.
2: Yeah. He's got some yeah. sweet pipes for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, I think we're, I think we're getting onto that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're fighting, Josh, or when you're getting ready, like for fencing, like you can, you on straight away, just take a little while to warm up. How does that work?
0: Yeah, usually I can, I can just kind of jump straight in and I'm, I'm there. Uh So, um, it doesn't, I mean, I, I I do warm up, but I, I can, I I usually warm up by fighting, not through like exercise or anything like that.
1: Okay. So that's got your hint of sanguine because sanguine should, sanguine, uh, fighters should be in the first, first place for fighting because they're ready immediately. Mm. And actually, the more they delay, the less effective they are. So, But you don't have such a technique. You don't look so fleshy. So I'm going to go with choleric sanguine, sanguine for you. Mm, yeah. okay. All right. Okay. Nice. Okay, so now okay, you know, know how to fix
2: little... all your disorders. All right. <laughs>
1: okay, let's have a I'm missing. I'm missing top of your head. I need a proper profile to be able to. Okay. 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 Yeah. So yeah.
2: I've got a big dome. It's an, I wear an extra large mask.
1: Okay. So you're kind of like a large round head. We're saying. Yeah, it's me. Yeah. Okay. Short, thick neck.
2: No, I think a little on the long side, personally. Yeah, you're right. you're right.
1: Yeah, you're right. Now you're now you're straightening up. You're kind of hunching over there. Um, yeah, I'm trying to stay so, in view. Okay, so do you tend to be like you feel when you're finding you kind of more loose, so you kind of have a hardness or a stiffness, or how do you describe loose?
2: That? Definitely loose for sure.
1: Uh huh. Okay, so mm-hmm. I think I think despite the melancholic large round head, um, mm-hmm. I think I think we're aiming more towards. Um, let me see, color. Yeah, because sanguines tend to be a bit rough. Uh, phlegm mm-hmm. are heavy and slow and enduring, so I think I think we're going with a bit of color as well. So I think it's like it's Colour, quite a choleric right. Um, choleric
3: cool.
1: out of here. um right. I gotta say when I read the description of choleric I used to always think of was sanguine mm-hmm. from like you know the kind right. of pop, pop psychology version but um I'm kind of long in 10 Um I think ages to warm up my ideal warm up routine is do a lot of in, in, put on my gear put on in, do interval training fence intensively after about 45 minutes I like lie on the floor and relax for 10 minutes get up I am on what? Or <laughs> yeah.
2: it's nap time
1: <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Maybe, maybe you're not choleric after all um but but <laughs> or in manicure elements, what it means I like fight I lose three bouts and then I'm on but it's too got late.
0: it
3: okay
2: <laughs> got it <laughs> nice all right Dr. Mike Prendergast has spoken
0: <laughs> that's right I love, it. love it, Mike. Um,
1: Thanks, man. Not a medical doctor, doctor of philosophy for our purposes.
0: <laughs> so, th- so to kind of to build off that a little bit, have you ever actually observed somebody's temper uh, as you've like kind of gone into a fight? Have you ever just looked at somebody and been like, ah, you know, this guy's going to be so sanguine or this guy's going to yeah. be choleric?
1: I-, I see the sanguine a lot more because someone's just, like straight into it and kind of yeah, fast mm-hmm. reactions. And, and Monty's really good advice for that, which sometimes I listen to, which is like, you need to like let them tire themselves out. It's like the male yeah. fighter fighting the armored fighter. You need to just fight them. Actually, Monty's got great advice on this, which I've never actually tried, but I should, which is start fighting with the weapon in your left hand.
3: Oh, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was awesome. It's a bit Princess Bride, but the idea is that you know, you're not going to overcommit your actions. You're going to be more conservative and defend yourself. It's kind of a way of forcing yourself to you are maintaining your energy, your strength Mm -hmm. and your breath while your opponent is wearing themselves out. You're keeping distance, you're using maneuver to wear them out. And then when they start to tar, then you change weapon and you go for it. So that's that's like how how we should deal with
3: that.
2: (laughs) Oh no. He shifted it to his right hand. He's getting serious now.
0: (laughs) I've actually I've done that. I've done that to people. Um so in, in a tournament, um, maybe two or three years ago. Well, I guess it was probably like three or four because, you know,
1: really? uh,
0: the lost years. But um, I, f- I fought a guy in warm-ups because he wanted. To- he was like, hey, man, do you want to spar? And I was like, okay, sure. So I fought him left-handed. And he was, I you know, I got in his head with my left hand. And then I fought him in the tournament right-handed. And he's like, wait a second. I <gasps> thought you were left-handed. And so he, he knew he was going to fight me. And then we came up to the fight uh, and he was like, oh my God, like you're not actually left-handed. You were, you were just messing oh with me. And God, I was like, dude. I mean, I was uh, just trying to stay balanced in my warm-up. warm up. You know, I up? wanted to, yeah, yeah, my, sure. it takes, yeah. takes longer for my lower body to wear out than it does my upper body. So, right. you know, it's nice to do both, but also
1: great head. Game. All right.
0: It yeah. is. Yeah. That's
2: awesome. All right, now,
0: yeah. Do gotta, you want to give that last two
2: big questions left for you? I'm going to get the last two important ones. All right. Okay, here we go. We talked about the Sorting Hat earlier. Mm-hmm. Did J.K. Rowling plagiarize Pietro Monte?
1: Well, well, obviously, with this whole Sorting and the four houses, I mean that's clearly melancholic, you know, choleric, sanguine, and clearly phlegmatic, right? I mean clearly. that's that's just obvious. Also, her gratuitous use of Latin is a clear plagiarism. Clearly, <laughs> and, also, and also, clearly, like she Latin. read
2: Monte and didn't translate it for us.
1: Yeah, well also, you know, Monty's Latin is sort of like kind of lowish medieval Latin. So, you know, there's I think there's a lot of overlap between that and, and J.K. Rowling's Latin. Um also I'm you know, you kind of start in Hogwarts when you're like of the age of a squire, probably when Monty himself. Right. It it may be it may be that Monty is actually the role model for Harry Potter. Who who can say? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Mind blown. I'm going to have to call him now Pietro Potter.
3: <laughs>
0: That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh. So back to serious questions. Uh, it's 1508. You get a letter from Pietro Monti. He's headed to the Alps to go kick some Lance Connex ass, and his buddy Mancino Bologna is with him, and he wants you to tag along. What weapon are you taking with you and why?
1: Okay. So I'm hoping if I got this job, I'm in some kind of command position. I'm not just a complete frontline grunt. Um, if I'm a frontline yeah. grunt, I'm taking a really long spear. Obvs. Um, uh But if I'm going to get mixing into the tick of things, I'm taking a poleaxe because I nice. think a module is going to be in the tick, And poleaxe is the utility can opener. It's like it does everything. Um, it's good. It's you know you can, you can wrestle with it. You can and, and also I I trained a lot with a poleaxe, so it's going to be a good fit. And I'm going to wear wearing full plate armor the Best Milanese plate with light German spoilers, so I'm going to be able to use that baby pretty well. Ah, that's
2: awesome. Sounds good man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I got it, I got probably, a great probably, vision
1: now. Probably a Warhammer just you know on the belt, just you know for emergencies. Yeah,
2: yeah, in case you need to play polo with somebody's head,
0: right? That's right. right. Well, Mike, thank you so much awesome, for coming man. on. Well, we actually it got was, through it. was an absolute yeah, pleasure. Mike, yeah, so
2: much. That was
1: awesome, I, man. I, I'm amazed. Did we get through all those questions? I, we I did, dude. Possible. Amazing. We did. Awesome. Amazing. Okay, this has been a really cool conversation. And, um, you know, despite earlier, you know, shoulder rubbing and posturing, <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> we got along with guys. That's right. So. Yeah, we, we essentially figured out that, yes, Monte is a very good bag of random tricks.
1: Well, oh, he yeah. is. Yeah. It's obviously, you know, not all Bolognese interpreters quite get him. I've always. Had, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time, Stephen. Give it time. Get yes. my website. Read, read, read slowly. We'll get there. All right.
2: I'll see what I can do. <laughs> cool. All right, Mike. Thanks for coming on, man.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the blast. Take care, folks. Right. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye.
0: And that concludes another episode of Le Arte del the Bolognese Podcast. I want to thank Mike Brindergast again for coming on. What a fantastic conversation about the legendary Pietro Monti. Stay tuned for the next installment of Maestro Wars, which will be 3.2. I look forward to distributing that and getting your reaction. Until then, stay tuned and stay saucy, my friends.